This is Judaism Unbound, episode 82, The Happiness Prayer. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we are here today with Evan Moffick. In addition to being the senior rabbi of Congregation Solel in suburban Chicago, Evan is an author and speaker. His most recent book is going to be published this coming Tuesday. It's called The Happiness Prayer, Ancient Jewish Wisdom for the Best Way to Live Today. We're really fascinated by this book because... Evan brings together ancient Jewish wisdom, specifically as captured by a particular prayer, which we'll discuss today. And he brings it into conversation with more modern wisdom, specifically positive psychology, but also all kinds of other wisdom that we have in the modern world today. And he asks how the two connect. And so, Evan, we are particularly excited to have you today to discuss your book. Welcome to Judaism Unbound. Thanks, Dan. It's wonderful to be here. Love the podcast so much. Truly grateful to have the opportunity to talk. Great. So I thought we could get started just with your giving us a little bit of a explanation of what your project of this book has been. What is this happiness prayer that you're writing about and what is it that you're trying to do with it? Well, I think we think about Judaism and we don't often think about happiness, right? You know that famous Jewish telegram, start worrying, details to follow. <laughs> so it's, it's not something that we typically associate with Judaism and actually not even with religion generally, right? There's that old joke, you know, uh, something like religion is uh, being upset that somebody somewhere is having a good time. Uh, and so I, I wanted to restore some sense of joy to Jewish tradition and practice, drawing from something I know you're interested in and that you've, uh, you've talked about before, and that's positive psychology. And this whole new school of thought, which if you look at it, is actually not even as old as the internet. This whole school of, of, of how to think about living a meaningful and flourishing life and combining what has been taught in positive psychology with what we can learn from Jewish tradition and practices and bring that together in something that is a meaningful book. It came about from those two different intellectual interests, Jewish life and positive psychology. And then my own experience as a rabbi kind of in the trenches dealing with challenges personally and as a member of the clergy and, and working with others. So that all kind of came together in this book project. And I, I realized there was a, a real need for it. The prayer that you're writing about is uh, been traditionally called Elu Dvarim, which basically means these are the things that um, you've, uh, I think, helpfully translated it uh, better as the happiness prayer. Um, <laughs> but could you tell us a little bit about what the prayer says? It's such a seminal text, I think, that we often overlook. So it's, it's a Talmudic text, which is part of the morning liturgy. And I'm a reform rabbi, so we don't have daily morning services. We don't have shachrit, but we do have Shabbat morning. And every Shabbat morning, we say this prayer, and I'm always just struck by how thoughtful it is. So it's, it's a text that says, these are the things whose worth cannot be measured. Um, and the reward, uh, uh, the, the reward is in this life, and the principle awaits us in the, in the world to come. And then it's honor father and mother acts of love and kindness, diligent pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, hospitality to wayfarers. And it goes on, and there's actually 10 of them. Uh, and uh, the last one is study of Torah. Uh, and uh, my original title for the book was The Other Ten Commandments, uh, because there, it's really uncanny that there are 10 of them, and only one of them overlaps with the Ten Commandments, as, as we think of it. Um, but as a, as a pr the, the happiness prayer was a kind of more... Uh, I don't want to say a less charged, the word uh, commandments can feel charged for people. And so prayer is something a little bit more open. And that's how we got to the happiness prayer. But the, the thinking behind it was, if we follow these words, then we'll feel happier in our life, a sense of flourishing. It's almost like a concrete blueprint, which um, I know in the past, I think it was Erwin uh, Kula in one, of, in one of your episodes that talked about positive psychology is great in theory and Judaism is great in practice. And this prayer kind of melds the two together. The theory of positive psychology, which is captured in the title and my goal, and the practices, which are captured in the prayer. At least my understanding of what Erwin Kula was saying was that 
here this scientific discipline of positive psychology has emerged in the last decade or so, and it talks about thriving as the goal for human life and that uh, that there are techniques that in theory can be used to help us thrive more, such as, for example, gratitude, right? They found that expressing gratitude helps people be happier. And so it would be great if we, uh, if we express more gratitude in our lives. But then because it's essentially an academic discipline, it doesn't really come up with, it's not really its job to come up with, okay, here's how you should live your life in such a way that you're expressing gratitude all the time. Whereas in principle, Judaism is a way of going about the world in which uh, sort of habitual actions is a big, big way that we often practice Judaism. And so if you could sort of bring the two together, you could use the toolbox of Judaism to achieve the goals of positive psychology. Now, my question in terms of how you have gone about this project is, do you think that A, what you're really doing is discovering and wanting to make it clear that this has been Judaism's pro project all along, and you're uh, sort of uncovering that and reframing it so that we understand it better? Or is it more that maybe this hasn't been the project of Judaism, but it ought to be the project of Judaism going forward, and there's still some material from the old stuff that we could bring forward in this new way? I initially thought that this was Judaism's project all along. I initially pictured it as the rabbis in crafting this prayer and in other texts were aiming to live a life of flourishing and that that was their aim. But the more I've learned about sort of rabbinic Judaism and Jewish history, the more I realize it probably wasn't. I mean, I think the, the ultimate goal was to live a life of obedience and service to God. Now, happiness may be a byproduct of that, but I don't think that was their explicit goal. But the more that I think the conversation in the Jewish community, a conversation I think you and Lex have, have kind of been leading in a way, talking about what is the project of Judaism, what, what, what is our purpose, what, what is being Jewish for, that that actually shifted my thinking in that I began to think about this prayer as a new lens into Judaism, that it is a way of, of, of kind of explaining why be Jewish and what can Judaism do for our lives. So I kind of reconceived the prayer. What I thought was its original purpose, I'm now thinking is the purpose that I'm giving to it. And, and some of the things that the rabbis kind of intuited just work I mean, that, that's, sort of, that's sort of part of the, the reason I think this prayer goes so well with positive psychology is that positive psychology is a science. It's all about what works. You know, they're all about proving scientifically through studies and labs and through rigorous testing what actually makes for a life of flourishing. And in a way, we have evidence that Judaism works. I mean, even just a simple thing of the fact that that we pray in a minion that forces people to live close to the synagogue and to tend to congregate in neighborhoods. And that has helped sustain community, which we know leads to happiness. So this practice, which, you know, may have originated whatever in, in, you know, the way the rabbis explain it, it has to do with the, the spies who go into the promised land. That's where you get the number 10 and, and Ada and minion that what may have been had sort of obscured origins is something that is very communally practical and contributes to a life of flourishing. I wanted to back out a little bit and look again at this happiness prayer that you've identified, the Elu Devarim uh, piece. Because w when I first saw that that's that you were invoking that for for a look into positive psychology and happiness, I was actually like I was intrigued because it was surprising to me. And the reason it was surprising to me is because I actually think of it as almost saying something or have thought of it as getting it almost maybe not quite an opposite, but a very different lens, which is it says like, these are the things that you do not primarily because of the benefit they bring you in this world or say the happiness, but because, but, but that you'll basically get a benefit for in the world to come. That's what the text sort of says. Um, and so my, like the way I've interpreted it in the past is that like you actually do these not for your own happiness, but for the benefit of 
others. I mean, the, some of the things listed are like honoring your father and mother. And so I think the implication there is you do it because it's important um, and not because it it may not bring you that much joy all the time to, to say honor your father and mother. So I guess I would love to just hear a little more how you're playing with with these particular listings of of things and why why there may be a great alternative interpretation that you're bringing that these are these are not just things we do to benefit others or that we benefit from in some future lifetime or whatever but that they actually really do bring that happiness to us on an individual level as well the word happiness is a controversial word in fact, Martin Seligman, who created positive psychology, does not like the word happiness anymore. His first book, which he wrote, I think it's the early 90s, was called Authentic Happiness. And he did not like that. And his last, latest book is called Flourishing. He likes the word flourishing much, much better. And the problem with happiness is it, you know, we think of happiness as in happy birthday, you know, let's eat cake, yay. So, so there's this kind of association of the word happiness with superficiality. And I don't like that association, and I, and I think it's, it's not how I define happiness. I think of happiness much more in terms of meaning and satisfaction with one's life as a whole. What I'm trying to say is there's a difference between happiness and pleasure. So pleasure is, you know, eating the birthday cake, uh, doing, you know, go, going on an amazing ride at an amusement park. That's pleasure. Happiness, I think, is, is, is much longer term. So something like honoring father and mother, I do think brings us happiness because I have talked with people just in my own, you know, career who have deep regrets about their relationship with their parents, you know, while their parents were alive and, and wish that there had been a, a greater closeness. Uh, whereas, you know, those who have tried to honor father mother maybe they don't maybe they don't see them all the time but they have them over for shabbat dinner or do things that that create that sense of honor there they feel better about their lives and that's what i think is sort of the counterintuitive genius of the prayer is that not all of these things do bring pleasure i mean studying who wants to study all the time it it I mean, maybe some people do but for a lot of people it's it's draining and boring uh, and yet you know, sometimes I look back on college and think, man, I wish I had done, you know, I wish I had taken that class or, or spent more time because that ability to just learn and grow, you don't have that many opportunities in life. So it is sort of counterintuitive wisdom, which I think is one of the great things Judaism constantly gives us. I'm thinking along those lines, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about, uh, there was one place where you were talking about religion sort of elevating and making sacred some of the things that we do naturally. But I also think that one of the things that I think that religion or a wisdom tradition really does is it gets us to do the things that we don't do naturally. And, um, and you know, I, I've often thought about the idea of what wisdom is, is that it's a way of passing along information to the next generation or to one another that generally you can only learn through the school of hard knocks. But if you learn it through the school of hard knocks, you've generally learned it too late. So for example, I think the easiest example is how to be a good parent. If you if you only learn that through the school of hard knocks, you probably learn that at the expense of, of your children. So one of the powerful things that a wisdom tradition can give us is this kind of instruction as to what are the things that you should do, even though, like Lex says, they won't make you happy in the moment, but they will lead to flourishing over the course of your life. And that that somehow is the happiness that we're after. And I wonder is a little bit of a interpretive, you know, leap or a midrash here, we could say that when the when the um, prayer talks about the uh, what we translate as the world to come, but it says, Olam Haba, you know, maybe it's uh, more referring to the, the later part of this world, right? You know, that you'll you'll be happy down the road if you do these things now that that maybe won't make you that happy. Ooh, I love that interpretation. That's good. And, you know, in my own personal life, I think of it, so there's a chapter eight, uh, I think it's chapter eight is about prayer because in the Elu Devarim, there's Iyun Tefillah, which, you know, means depth of prayer, meaning, you know, pray with sincerity is how it's translated in the Reform Prayer Book. And I think of my own life, one of the reasons I'm grateful to be a rabbi is it forces me to go to services on Friday night. I tell you probably three times out of four, I'm tired. It's been a long week. And, you know, I got two little kids and I kind of just want to stay home and watch a movie. 
Uh, and yet I know, you know, my congregation's depending on me and I go and I almost always feel better after going. You know, it's the sense of community, the singing, you know, even, even, if, even if it doesn't, even if it wasn't such a great sermon or such a great feeling of spirit, I'm grateful that I had that chance to, 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 to sit in community. And so having, doing those things that may not seem like they're going to feel great at the time, ultimately make us feel better. And so I, I, I do think that there, that religion does that. I think that's one of the things it does well. So yes, I think that's one of religion's irreplaceable functions. Hopefully this question isn't too far out of left field, but I, I couldn't hold back because one of the early chapters of your book um, is about the Chicago Cubs, of all things. And and um, I, that that pushes one of my positive buttons, which is that I love the overlap of, of sports and religion in general, and also sports and Judaism. And what you did there, I found to be really excellent because so much of what people do when they're trying to apply sports to Judaism is they say, look, here's Sandy Koufax, or here's Hank Green, or, or here's Ali Raisman, or one of these famous Jewish athletes. And they say, like, they were Jewish. That's cool. He lets, um, but what you did is actually, no, I, I'm not going to, like, talk about the Jewishness of particular people. I'm going to look at a recent development in the Chicago Cubs and how that plays with my conception of religion. And I'd love to hear you, because um, I read it, but I'd love to hear from your voice and for our listeners, like, what what is it that we can learn from the Chicago Cubs the last few years and how it applies to religion and happiness? Well, thank you. You know, as I was writing this, it's when the, the Cubs had their championship season, you know, the World Series. And I'm in Chicago. I'm on the North Shore. Uh, I actually grew up more of a White Sox fan because my dad is from the south side of Chicago. But I've kind of become a Cubs fan by osmosis. And, um, and I was, of course, following the season closely. And the Cubs brought in five years ago this manager, Theo Epstein. Uh, and Epstein's whole philosophy was there are certain concrete things, measurable things, that if we do them well, they will ultimately lead us to winning. And they're not focusing on the big things like how many home runs did this guy hit last year, but on the little things like on-base percentage, number of pitches thrown, statistics that we don't often think about. And that was so Epstein sort of rigorously focused the team on those key, st- those key practices. And by focusing the team there, they got better and better incrementally over time. You know, it took, took five years. You know, the first couple of years, they were doing terribly. But then over time, those little actions paid off. Sometimes when we go and we spend a morning studying or on a Sunday when we could be, you know, watching football, we go to a, uh, you know, to, to a, a lecture or we go to a, a study session that may seem like hard work and something we don't really want to do uh, at the time, but that we feel better and we ultimately grow as a human being and we're happier uh, in a deep sense, you know, a year later, or a couple of years later. I think that was true with the Cubs and it's true with each of our lives. And so I kind of wanted to, to bring out that connection. Could you give us some more of the key examples that you think would be really beneficial to share of some of the elements of the prayer and how you connected them to either to positive psychology or to more contemporary uh, concerns and or ideas? I think my favorite chapter is the, the chapter on kindness. Uh, and one of the, the interesting things that have been discovered in positive psychology is that the number one thing that makes us feel better immediately, so this isn't even, I'm not even talking long-term now, that immediately is performing an act of kindness. Uh, uh, and it could be as simple as holding the door open for somebody or, um, you know, picking up somebody and taking them to, to synagogue, you know, for, for, for services. That these little acts of kindness make us feel so much better. And then, as I was reaching, so, so that sort of sounds cliche-ish, okay? That's, uh, people know that. But what I, what I wanted to go deeper is, you know, why aren't we more kind as people? And I came across this wonderful um, psychiatrist writer named Adam Phillips, Uh, who's a secular Jew, lives in London, and he talked about that, why aren't we more kind? And he pointed out that in some ways, being kind creates a sense of vulnerability. 
Like we're putting ourselves out there. So if we say to somebody, hey, I'll pick you up for services on Shabbat, and they might say, no, I'm not going to services. Why would you waste your time asking me? We feel bad. We wanted to do something. And they said, well, what you want to do is not valuable to me. So we that, therefore, in order to not feel embarrassed or feel vulnerable, we, don't, we aren't more kind than we should be. I thought about that in terms of, of you know, going to the hospital. You know, one of the, the I think it's number the fifth or sixth practice is uh, Bikor Cholim, so visiting people in the hospital. In a way, we resist, we don't visit people as much as, as, as we can, partially because going to the hospital makes us feel vulnerable. We're saying, oh my God, it could have been me, or God, oh, I hope I don't get sick like this person. Recognizing that we don't do things because they make us feel vulnerable, but yet we are happier when we do them was kind of a revelation for me. So that to me was the most important. But in terms of the reactions I've got to people who've read the book, one of the most impactful chapters for people has been the one on honoring father and mother. Because one of the things I say in it is that the, the verb, kibud aveim, it's kibud to honor, kavod, heaviness. It's not Ahava, it's not love, and that we owe our parents honor, whether they were good parents or bad parents. Now, of course, there are limitations with abuse and so forth, but to honor father and mother is an act of gratitude for the gift of life, even if our relationship with them is not strong, and there are specific ways we can honor our parents without letting them hijack our lives, which a lot of people you know, feel like their older parents do. And that chapter, I think, has been impactful for people because it gave them permission to kind of be good children to the extent that they can, but also not to feel overburdened. So to me, the, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I've had loving parents, great parents in every dimension. But I think that that chapter has, has helped a lot of people reconceive their obligations. We spend a lot of time on our show talking about the extent to which um, the ancientness of certain rituals adds to their to their meaning and to their value, and the ways in which totally new ideas can also be incredibly powerful, including totally new ideas that we sort of implant ourselves a badge of authenticity on from a Jewish perspective. And I guess I'm curious, so we've got this happiness prayer, we've got Elu Devarim, many, many, many hundreds of years old, um, that has a certain rubric of here are, I think you said, 10 practices. Are there any practices that they don't list, uh, they being the rabbis, uh, that maybe if we were writing this up today, you'd want to throw on on top of them? Because I'd love, I'd love to I'd love to say the rabbis had it all nailed, but I have a suspicion that there might be some other ideas that we could put on the table as well. I think there are, for sure. One of the things, of course, I try to do is kind of try to fit like a lot of different things under, under one concept. So, um, so I try to expand the meaning of each of the 10 things to cover things that, that may not be in there. But definitely, I mean, one of the things and I kind of outlined this in the first chapter, is there's this sort of five-part framework for capturing the, the, the actions that scientists have shown lead to happiness. And it's, you know, meaning and mastery and significance. Mastery is one of the things they don't talk about. You know, this, the, the prayer doesn't say learn a trade or learn a skill. One of the, one of the insights of positive psychology is that if we can feel mastery over a certain task, that adds to our happiness. We don't have to be the best in the world at it, but if we feel, let's say, uh, let's say we play tennis, for example, we don't have to be the best tennis player in the world, but if we can feel like we know what we're doing, we can serve, we can do forehand, backhand, that sense of mastery of something makes us happier, makes us feel more fulfilled. It could be speaking Hebrew or learning Spanish. So, that's something I think that is not really within the prayer. I kind of tried to fit that in under lifelong learning, but that might have been a little bit of a stretch. Another thing is self-reflection is a huge factor in feeling a sense of happiness. And that's not really addressed so much by the rabbis. You know, they're, they're so outward community focused. They don't get as much into the internal parts, the, 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 the self-directed parts of, of happiness you know, a little bit more of a focus on, on self-reflection, I think could have been in the prayer. So definitely, if, if we could rewrite the prayer today, I think we'd add a few things. 
I mean, this kind of raises what I would say are the polar questions of syncretism on the one hand and bundling on the other hand, um, right? The idea, the syncretism idea is, you know, when are the times in which uh, for Judaism to flourish, it needs to adopt ideas, practices, et cetera, from elsewhere. And whether that elsewhere is science or Eastern religion or most frightening of all for <laughs> many Jews is Christianity uh, on the one hand. And and the bundling issue is is where, you know, I think a lot of times I have this kind of conversation with folks that have bought into the whole bundle of Jewish traditional practice. And where I will say, well, here are the things that I really love about Judaism, that I think Judaism has been really right on about in so many ways, such as, for example, the value of turning ideas into habitualized practices, right? And they sort of say to me, well, you know, that's why you should be coming to synagogue, and that's why you should be doing all these other things that are inherently part of synagogue, right? And and the question that I kind of want to ask is, well, aren't there times when you know, maybe I don't have to do that, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe there are times when certain elements of Judaism sort of come to a natural end, and other elements become more prominent. And and how do we know that we're not at one of those times, right? You know, and um, and so I'm curious, as a rabbi, you know, right? How do you sort of negotiate that that middle position between bundling and syncretism, and and think about, you know, to what extent is Judaism malleable, and and to what extent should it not be malleable either by saying, no, these things do come in a bundle and or, you know, no, we need to keep these things out because otherwise there won't be any any uh, uniqueness to Judaism. Yeah, I, I definitely believe in malleability and I, I I think syncretism is a good thing. I mean, and so, I mean, I think, but it, but it's a, it's a big dilemma as a, as a reform rabbi who's probably on the more liberal side of, of a lot of, of issues. Um, I, I generally think I've been actually giving this a lot of thought based on some, what, some of what I've learned from you. I don't really worry all that much about syncretism. I kind of think if we do the things that enhance life and meaning and we do it in the context of the synagogue, people are going to come and get it there. And I don't worry so much about whether they're going to they're going to associate it with Jewish identity. Am, are we doing things that enhance human life and are we doing it well as within a synagogue, identifying it with Judaism? Of course, I want to promote Judaism and I believe Judaism has, has, has a great path, but I don't think it's a monopoly. And I'm happy if people are doing uh, many, you know, following some of these practices elsewhere. I mean, this, this, I'm glad we've kind of gone in this direction because I think this kind of is, is one of the great challenges and dilemmas of, of liberal, of non-Orthodox Judaism. And one of, I always think about what one of my mentors, who I know that, that, that you knew, Dan, uh, uh, Arnold Jacob Wolf, and, and he said once, uh, I don't worry about Jewish survival. God will take care of that. I just worry about being the best Jew I can be. Uh, and to me, I worry about, in a way, being the best you I can be, which is another way of being the best person I can be. And I don't worry all that much about, well, well are people coming to get this at the synagogue or not? Uh, I love synagogues. I love what they stand for. And I kind of have, I guess this is the faith part of it. I have a faith that if we do what synagogues do and we do it well, people will continue to come. And I do think that then, then there's the other question is, can we kind of unbundle Judaism? Can we take prayer and sort of say, well, I may not really like the prayer stuff, but I do like the community and the sense of community. And I like the study. I think absolutely. In my synagogue, uh, uh, we have probably 40 people that come on a Saturday morning to a Torah study class and probably five of them stay for the minion afterwards. Now, I'm not that proud about that. I, I kind of wish people would stay more, but, but that is, I, I'm, I'm fine with it though. In the, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, I think they're coming to learn and I'm happy they're learning here and I'm providing some value there uh, and that's okay. And, uh, and ultimately, here's, here's sort of the, my own personal response to that is, I think we are attracted to different parts of Judaism in different parts of life. So there may be moments when the traditional prayers and the imagery in those prayers 
really do mean something. I mean, I tell you, people who are very rational when, 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 when a loved one dies, some of them really do feel that there is an afterlife that their spouse or their child has gone to. And that's comforting. Whereas they wouldn't admit that in the normal day-to-day life, they find that imagery comforting. So, so I think that there are times when, when the traditional language does appeal to us and we should be open to those times without saying that we have to believe it all the time. The other piece of unbundling Judaism is that if Judaism becomes unbundled, this, you start to question, okay, if I can grab bits and pieces of Judaism that are resonant to me, can I grab bits and pieces of other traditions? And the flip side of that is if you're not Jewish, um, are those same are, are those people going to be grabbing bits and pieces of Judaism? And I asked this, I, I was on your website when we were prepping for this, and I, I noticed something that I maybe, I don't know if this was conscious or not, but you you framed your your work not as, you know, this is for Jews, or this is, you, you framed it as sort of, you work with Jewish wisdom and provide it to whoever wants it. And that's a subtle distinction. It reminds me of when we had the kitchen on a long time ago, and they said that they're like a spiritual community that works from the basis of Judaism or something like that. Um, it's a subtle distinction, but it's different, which it's it's saying, it's making a big claim that this stuff is valuable, not just for people born into it or that convert to it, but for whoever. And I guess I'd love to hear how that relates to the specific teachings of, you know, the happiness prayer, but also more generally, like, what what is it about... Like, why is it that that the stuff of Judaism should be open from your perspective to people who aren't Jewish? And what does that look like in today's world? I think basically, if you are a non-Orthodox rabbi, if our worship service does not feel spiritually fulfilling to somebody who's not Jewish, our Judaism isn't, isn't working. Because I tell you, on a Saturday morning for a bar bat mitzvah service, at least a third of the people there And that's in Highland Park. Let's say we're in a different, you know, which is a a very Jewish neighborhood. Uh, In many synagogues, at least half the people there will be people who are not Jewish. And if they, I feel like I'm not doing my job if they don't leave with some spiritual fulfillment. In America today, Judaism has to have something to offer people who aren't Jewish. Uh, And I think that that it does. And it, it offers this great wisdom. And part of my goal as a rabbi is to share that. And I think that that, that hasn't been a part of Judaism's mission or, or purpose for a long time, but it, it's, it's something that we have, to, we have to know that our wisdom speaks to their needs. Now, am I just doing that for practical purposes or do I actually sort of believe that? And I do believe it uh, because I think the whole notion of Judaism as a religion is not really no, the, the, the Bible doesn't have a word for religion. These were just the children of Abraham. And, you know, there's that great text in Genesis, all the nations of the world shall be blessed through, through you. And I do think that there's deep Jewish wisdom that is a blessing to other people. Now, it doesn't mean we have a monopoly on it, but what we can teach should enhance other people's lives. So, yes, I'm very conscious that what I say is Jewish wisdom that is for people of all faiths or no faith. Yeah, and I, and I think that the sort of bookend to that is, at least the way that I've often been thinking about this question, is that a lot of Jews today are in many ways more similar to their non-Jewish neighbors than to sort of Jews from the past. And if the services and whatever's going on isn't working for non-Jews, it probably isn't working for very many Jews either. And so it's actually a good test case. Absolutely. I mean, when I when I do a wedding and, you know, I, I perform interfaith weddings and, you know, I, I don't know many reform rabbis who do any weddings if they don't do interfaith weddings, because those are the those are the majority of weddings. But I explain everything and I consciously explain it in ways that people who are not Jewish know what's going on. But because of that, I have people who, who are Jewish, who've been to a lot of Jewish weddings say, that was the most, the best wedding I've ever been to because I knew what was going on. I felt connected to what was going on. Thank you. And so simply by explaining the chuppah and explaining the concept of the exchange of rings and explaining what the kiddush means, that, that people felt connected to it. You know, if we reveal Jewish wisdom, we don't need to worry about, are, are we getting enough Jews and are we doing enough inreach? If we just take Torah as itself and teach that wisdom, it'll appeal to Jews and non-Jews and will ultimately strengthen Jewish community. Among the liberal movements of Judaism, 
it strikes me sometimes that it's the rabbis of the different movements who are different from one another, whereas the people are more or less the same. You know, the old joke is that a conservative synagogue is a reform congregation with an orthodox rabbi. But so maybe there's a difference between the people in terms of sort of what type of rabbi appeals to them, but there isn't really a whole lot of difference among the people in terms of fundamentally what are they looking for in terms of what Judaism is for them in their own lives. And it was actually interesting, a few weeks ago, we talked to Ari Kelman, the the sociologist, and he was talking about how in his interviews that were not surveys, but just sort of open interviews with uh, Jews, so many of them brought up the idea of traditions un unprompted. And it was really just, you know, kind of the, there's some kind of folk Judaism that people are really looking for a kind of way of, of living in which this old material really feels meaningful for them, but they're not making these distinctions. Are we a legal movement and not legal movement? You know, what's our theology exactly? You know, and the, the sort of um, hair splitting that I think uh, goes on a lot at the more leadership level, so to speak. And I'm wondering sort of where you see all that going and, and what you think the future holds. I think in the post-World War II environment, it was very clear why people chose denominations, right? People chose the conservative movement because they weren't orthodox. They, they did not feel comfortable. That was their parents' religion. But they weren't reformed because reform seemed, you know, reform was still the German Jews and it seemed too formal and Gentile. And, you know, that, that was, they, they, so the, the people joined conservative synagogues. People joined reform synagogues in that era because they generally were, you know, a, a little bit more uh, upper class and they had German background, or they, they kind of felt more intellectual. This, and this lasted probably through the 60s. Then it changed, and there was a, a kind of starting, you see it really start, if you look at demography in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, that there's a greater shift to reform. And part of that is um, the children of conservative Jews were in many ways acting like reformed congregants. And now, if we look at it now, I really don't know why people choose to go to different denominations. Some, some still, especially if, if it's an older community, they still feel that, well, I feel just more ethnically comfortable in a conservative synagogue. You know, I remember, you know, Passovers with my parents and there was Hebrew. And I remember growing up that the Chazan would sing this melody and I get that in a conservative synagogue. But I think now, basically, people go where they feel comfortable, where they, where they feel happy going. So it really has nothing to do with the denominational label, uh, has nothing to do with their view on halakha. It has to do with, do I feel good there? I want to keep rolling on that thread because I think this is really important. There's the future question about where where this will go. And um, one thing I've been trying to do with myself is I think we there's this tendency to sometimes think about like, oh, if we if we don't, if we notice X trend, like it's probably on its path to to go in that direction in 25 years. And sometimes we've, we don't notice that like it's already a re it's already happened. Um, and I actually think that the denominational question, like when I talk to people, especially younger people, the the very small group of them that are involved with a congregation or with Jewish life. And I ask them, like, why did you join? Like, why did you join? X synagogue or I mean it's never uh, maybe not never it's almost never I'm reformed so I joined the reform one I'm concerned it's oh I grew up reformed but now I'm going to a reconstructionist one or I grew up conservative um and I'm going to reform or I grew up reconstructionist I'm going to conservative I mean people like they like they liked the service or they they went to or their friend was there or whatever it was the the whole idea that like ideology is driving any of this and that there is a real distinction on the ground between the groups of people going to a reform or a conservative or a renewal or a reconstructionist congregation i think a lot of it is not just future tense going to to be untrue but like already right now and so i guess i'd love to hear since you are on the ground in a reform congregation and like you said you're in an area with a lot of jews and i'm guessing a lot of jews that are in other 
kinds of congregations, etc. How do you think of your role? Like, do, is it important to you that like you are a reform rabbi and stand for that reform element of you, or do you see yourself more as just like a rabbi who's coming from the reform place? Um, or is there some bridge? Uh, like, I'd love to hear from you on that, partially because I'm selfishly thinking about my own answer. Like, when I become one, am I a renewal rabbi? Since I'm in the renewal program, am I like those kinds of questions? If I were applying to rabbinical school today, I'm not sure I would go to HUC. I mean, I think I, I had a great experience there. And I think in terms of, you know, the, the, the structure of the reform movement means that there are congregations that, you know, you kind of have this built-in system that can help you, um, you know, with jobs and so forth. But aside from the sort of practical elements of it, I don't think it has any special cachet or stature or learning that distinguishes it. I really don't see any difference. I mean, aside from the label between a renewal rabbi reconstructionist, I think there, there are different styles among rabbis from each, but it's very much individual. And I'm not sure that our whole system for training rabbis really works. I mean, I think that's why the success of alternative seminaries is so huge because the, the way to train a rabbi is so different than, than to train a doctor or a lawyer. And when, the, and, and when the, the schools were set up as they were, that was their model. But that isn't how we operate at all. So, um, and, and I think you're right. I think that's already happening. I mean, I think the, the, the fact that people aren't joining synagogues as much is sort of a reflection of that, that, that this kind of older model doesn't really work. Our whole economic, the financial structure of Jewish life is based on this congregational model. And my, my whole life is, is in a way based on this model and it works in some ways, but it's not working for everybody. Yeah, I mean, it, it, actually, that's a great uh, segue to, you know, wh where I wanted to go anyway, which was to sort of, I mean, a lot of times on this show, we talk about disruptive innovation, by which we fundamentally mean really new ideas, you know, living out in the world of people who are not connected in any meaningful way to any Jewish institution, and just sort of a whole different uh, Jewish world that that m might exist in potential and that could come into existence if we invested there. But I also think that there's a lot to talk about in terms of the world of what we would call in this framework sustaining innovation, which is really about how do we strengthen the Jewish world for those who actually do have some interest in the existing forms. And this is where the question, I think, really is in terms of some of what we're looking at in synagogues. It's like, what would we build today if we were building from scratch a set of institutions that would serve well the constituents, the Jewish constituents out there who really are looking for a relatively traditional approach to Jewish living. And my guess is that we would invent something that looks much more like a Hillel or, you know, a JCC, but with a lot more content than that looks like a synagogue that does some of the other non-religious stuff too, right? I, and, and you know, Lex often talks about this um, thing that he once participated in called Jews in the Woods, which is this kind of bunch of Jews that like to be in the woods. And it's not an organization. It's just a bunch of Jews that like to go in the woods. And sometimes it dies and sometimes some new group comes along and revives it again. And, you know, it doesn't have to have this institutional permanence. And I think that the reason why that terrifies a lot of folks who uh, are coming from the world of Jewish institutions is because so much of the concern is about the economic sustainability of, of, of these institutions. And either they make it or they don't. And if they make it, they go along as, as or they bump along as, as much as they can. And if they don't, they die and they close, which seems sort of tragic when the alternative might have been that what if those synagogues had merged before they closed? You know, I wonder whether the barriers there are primarily a lack of imagination, primarily irreconcilable philosophies, primarily the practical realities of that they have rabbis who have salaries and are, are very resistant to those kind of mergers because it probably would mean that they would have to lose one of those rabbinical positions, for example, and neither of the rabbis is willing to be the one. You know, I mean, what are really the obstacles or is is what I'm describing sort of wrong, you know, because I, I, I really can imagine a, a something that looks like a JCC, 
but it's, let's say, a religious JCC, right? And what that allows is that there can be these constantly shifting minions. You know, sometimes the reform minion is strong. Sometimes it dies. And, you know, sometimes it starts up again. And that's, by the way, what happens often in Hillel's. And I just sort of wonder whether a, a major reason why that doesn't happen in the world of Jewish post-college adults is because of all kinds of institutional structures that actually have nothing really to do with the question of what is the best way to deliver the Jewish experience that the people are really looking for. Yeah, all of the above. But I want to point out two different factors that I think kind of get in the way. The first is sort of my own, I kind of see it in my own personal journey. Um, I'm generally more of a risk averse person, I think, uh, in life. I don't, I don't, like confrontation very much and and all this. But I think over time, I've become more comfortable with risk and taking risks. And I think that that has helped me as a rabbi. And I think that a lot of, I, I think synagogues have to take risks and try to do risky things like mergers. You know, I've become more comfortable being very personal in sermons, which I never would have done even five, six years ago. I talk about my own failings and problems and, and my own life. And, 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 and I think that that has helped make the synagogue feel real and people feel a connection. And I think in many ways, just taking this now to an institutional level, you have very smart people on synagogue boards, very successful people that within a synagogue, they suddenly get very risk averse and very worried about every sort of legal dotting every I and crossing every T. And I think that successful synagogues are willing to take risks. The second thing is, and this may be even a bigger problem, but basically most American Jews are not very religious. You know, something, if you ask about belief in God, what is it, I think like 93% of Christians say yes, and something like 57% of Jews say yes. So in many ways, our people are not looking for many religious experiences. So in a way, a synagogue is almost irrelevant. And so the, the amount of money it takes to belong to a synagogue, which is a lot, because rabbis are paid much more than, than Christian ministers, you know, which is great for me and, and I think anybody in the Jewish world, but it, it creates an economic burden that is hard, especially when people aren't all that religious. So what are we, I, in a way, I'm sometimes amazed that synagogues are surviving as they do, uh, because most American Jews are not all that interested in it. And they get, I mean, I think we're all interested in kind of knowing that life has a bigger purpose than just ourselves, you know, sort of the basic transcendent impulse. But a lot of American Jews aren't looking for that in synagogues. I mean, it almost feels like we need a book, the ha you know, Happiness Prayer Volume 2, Synagogue Edition, you know, that we, <laughs> but, but in many ways, like, I'm serious that saying, like, how could we take some of this wisdom that we naturally apply or, or think applies to individuals, but how can we understand them as applied to institutions? And, and just the most simple example is death, right? I mean, we're so comfortable with the idea of death for individuals, like we're afraid of it and we're, we're, we hope it doesn't happen, but we're comfortable with it. We understand it's inevitable. And the question isn't how to avoid death. The question is what to do when death comes. But for institutions, we don't seem to think that way. We instead try to find the fountain of youth and try to resist death at all costs and, you know, maybe even have reanimated zombies, you know, and, and be comfortable <laughs> with that, even though on an individual <laughs> level, we know that they eat brains. But but in all seriousness, like the question is, you know, what about what there's so many other characters of individuals that I think so much map onto institutions as well. And yet, for some reason, we don't apply them there. Or And I guess my question also is like, I think that we did in the past. I mean, I'm sure it was always hard, but I think that one of the great things that the rabbis, the early rabbis did, right, was that they were able to respectfully bury Second Temple Judaism and many of its institutions. And then they were also able to, I don't know, what's the word when you cut off a, a, a piece of a tree and replant it? You know, they were able to take the parts that still had life and replant them in different soil. And, and that was a kind of wisdom that I would love to read the happiness prayer book about that. That's, that's that risk. And, and another word, again, this may sound cliche-ish, but certain sense of fearlessness, like an ability to say, you know what, we're going to let this institution fail and we're not afraid of what's going to happen. It's not going to be the end of the world. It's okay. We'll, we'll rebuild. We'll be fine. And, and thinking strategically about 
you know, this is, you did a series about Silicon Valley. I mean, things fail all the time there. In fact, I remember reading something that, you know, if somebody, that, that some certain corporations won't hire somebody if they haven't experienced a, a failure, you know, if they haven't worked. So absolutely. I mean, I, I, again, sort of on an individual level, dealing with tragedy, going through experiences of loss makes you a deeper person. Again, that sounds cliche-ish, but it's true. And in some ways, you know, to, to, to be an effective synagogue leader, you have to have seen things fail before. As we arc to the close, is there anything that we haven't been able to touch on either from the book or just from, you know, your experiences as a rabbi or otherwise that you wanted to bring for our listeners to hear? Yes. I, the one thing, as, as we kind of talked here at the end, I sometimes think synagogues are given a bad rap in many ways. And I think there's so much that this idea of a synagogue as a hub of community and a place of, of really finding joy is, I think, part of what, what led me to write this book. One of the things about the happiness prayer is one of the concepts is community. And truthfully, the place where we can cultivate that happiness is within a community. And I think synagogues, for all their structural, systematic, financial problems, are an extraordinary invention that have sustained Judaism, you know, since the first Babylonian exile. So synagogues are, there's a time-tested proof that they work when done well. And I believe strongly in in, in finding ways to strengthen that. The other thing is, and, and maybe this is a whole another episode, understanding Judaism as a, as a source for happiness and flourishing is a whole new lens on why be Jewish and why sustain Judaism and how to live Judaism. And a friend of mine, uh, Darren Levine, uh, who's a rabbi in New York, just wrote a great article called Positive Judaism, where he actually goes through concrete steps as to taking positive psychology and how it can shape our holiday observances our pastoral care, you know, asking somebody in the hospital some, something about what gives their life meaning and resilience. So I think that there are ways that this, you know, I, I was writing more for the individual and a person of any faith as to how sort of positive psychology and wisdom can enrich their lives. But I think that there's a lot that positive psychology can do for Jewish professionals. And I'm happy to talk, you know, I, I, I love connecting with people. So anyone who's listening to this and wants to talk more about this, um, and maybe you're a Jewish professional, maybe you're someone who just likes to go to synagogue, but there's, there's a lot more that kind of positive psychology can do for us than just make us feel happier on an individual level. Thanks again to Evan Wafik for joining us for this episode of Judaism Unbound. We want to encourage folks to order his book called The Happiness Prayer. If uh, you're listening before September 12th, uh, then the book comes out soon. If you're listening after September 12th, it has already come out. So head to Amazon either way uh, or wherever else you want to buy your books and you can order The Happiness Prayer. We want to close out this episode in the same way we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can check out our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us financially with either a one-time donation or a monthly recurring gift. And you can do that, either of those, at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.